Welcome to Success the Last, a podcast that honestly explores the complicated topic of success. I'm your host, Jared Siegel. I'm a partner at DeLap and leader of our wealth advisory practice. During each episode, we're going to talk to a business owner, entrepreneur, real estate investor, or industry thought leader about their own experiences, insights, and observations as it pertains to life, business, finances, and ultimately fulfillment. Candidly, it can be lonely at the top. Our desire is to use this podcast to connect you with the ideas and resources so you can be better equipped to make more predictable, profitable, and rewarding decisions as you juggle the competing priorities of life, business, and money. Keep in mind, this is a podcast. It's not meant to be a replacement for your CPA or financial advisor, so be sure to check with the appropriate professionals before implementing any of the ideas. Welcome back to another episode of Success That Lasts. I'm going to list off a couple of companies and uh, I want you to play this guessing game with me. What do they have in common? AT&T, General Motors, General Electric, Exxon, Bristol Myers Squibb, Cisco Systems. Any common denominators amongst all those companies? Well, the common thread that I observed across all of these is they started a decade as one of the top 10 largest U.S. companies but yet fell off the top 10 at some point. And it's not unusual, it's actually more the norm than an outlier. So if we actually look at the empirical evidence of what happens after a company punches into the top 10 in the United States, and we look at, let's call 92 years worth of data, 1927 through 2019, let's observe the periods right after they first became a top 10 company. What actually happens? Well, over the next five years, they underperform the S&P by 1.1%. And over the next 10 years, they underperform by 1.1% per year. So the underperformance, to some extent, is to be predicted. So why is change so difficult? Why is continued excellence so challenging? Well, obviously, change is one of the inevitable constants in, in business. But why is innovation and change management maybe one of the hardest things that you have to deal with as a leader and a business owner? There are a lot of different ways to answer this really basic question, and we're going to explore a lot of them in today's conversation with DeLap's own Kyle Reynolds. We cover the neuroscience of change. We cover some of the strategies that have been proven to support change management, and we'll share some of our own experiences, successes, and failures as it pertains to our own change management initiatives. So without further ado, let's jump into today's conversation with Kyle Reynolds. Kyle Reynolds, we're live. Welcome to Success That Last. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Hey, so COVID-19, married, father to a beautiful little daughter. What are you doing these days to pass the time with an 18-month-old in the midst of COVID-19 and social distancing? What do the weekends look like for you? (laughs) When I'm not trying to plan a conference call without at least two or three interruptions by uh, our daughter, Madison, uh, we like to, family likes to get out and do family hikes. We, we tend to go to Mount Hood quite a bit or um, we're planning on going to Hood River. So, you know, just get outdoors as much as we can and, uh, you know, expose our daughter to the activities that my wife and I love to do. That's awesome. Yeah. 2020 has been a year of just incredible change. Episode after episode, we're just talking about what unusual times these are and how successful companies are incredibly adaptable and are able to navigate the complexity of change. And so today you and I are going to spend a little bit of time talking about change. 
But I guess before we jump into that topic, let's just start with who you are and some of the experiences you've had, maybe some of the changes along the way that you've experienced professionally that have ultimately led us to today's conversation. Yeah, great. Who am I? Well, I've had a unique career thus far. I'm going uh, into my 16th year of being a professional. The majority of that time I've spent in public accounting. Uh, So essentially after graduating what you, Jared, like to call uh, the Harvard of the West, also known as Oregon State, I went to go to work with a regional accounting firm where for the most part I serviced uh, the assurance practice. So that's basically financial statement, audits, reviews, compilations. And then there was a point in time where I thought that I would get a more in-depth experience and or new experiences with a different service line. So I chose an international uh, public accounting firm. And there I spent some time in the consulting practice where we serviced um, a wide range of clients Uh, sizes, shapes, industries. Um, And then ultimately, I thought I was done with public accounting. So I chose to uh, spend a year or two in an internal audit function. The Fortune 500 company, Portland, uh, as a logistics company. After, you know, a couple years of getting my feet wet on that side of the table, I couldn't stay away from public accounting. So I actually had a unique opportunity to go back to my hometown of McMinnville, Oregon, and join a family business. So with that business, it was a small boutique accounting firm that I was able to join as as a partner where we did, uh, the firm does tax, assurance, advisory, you name it. And so, yeah, that's, uh, that's where I landed for close to six years. And as you mentioned, Previously, my wife and I had a daughter, and that ultimately got us uh, back up to Portland. So that's uh, where we're at now. And helping lead a lot of DeLapp's uh, advisory work these days. That is the goal, yes. Phenomenal. Hey, so I'm kind of curious. At times, I've described DeLapp as kind of a Goldilocks firm. Not the biggest firm, not the smallest firm, but seems to fit Portland just right. And so I guess, talk to me a little bit about what that experience was like going from you know, doing consulting and financial leadership engagements for some of the biggest companies in the world to now, you know, joining a boutique accounting practice in a small kind of bedroom community of Portland, Oregon, presumably the kind of the size of client and scope of work continue to evolve. I guess, what is the biggest difference in that venue change, that theater change from large global international companies to kind of locally held and operated businesses. Yeah, I'd say, you know, I actually have had this conversation. So I've been with DeLap for a little over a year now. I've had this specific conversation with a few colleagues in terms of, you know what you're going to get when you go to an international or what we used to call or still call the big four accounting firms. You're going to get exposed to the big companies, the complex transactions, you know, the fast pace. You're going to learn a ton. Um, It's going to be pressure-filled, pretty stressful at times, but it's also going to be exciting. I mean, you're learning every day, every hour. So that was that was great experience. But like I said, there's a lot of lot of stress. A lot of there. It takes a specific person to uh, last 
in that type of environment and succeed in that environment. So when I compare that to uh, the small boutique firm that I was previously at in my hometown, really it was a complete opposite. So the exposure to complex transactions wasn't there necessarily on a daily basis like it was in the big four, but really I got to understand the business and the business owner a lot more. I got to look at the the journal entries. I mean, so essentially dive into the weeds, which necessarily I wasn't doing at the big four. And so when you wrap up those two sides of the spectrum, I think, like you said previously, I think the, the lap fits right in the middle because what I've seen in my year at the lap is I get a mixture of all of it. There's clients that I service that don't need me into the weeds. They don't need uh, a detailed uh, set of eyes for that specific um, transaction or specific service that they're looking for. Um, and so I, I serve more as the, um, as an advisor for, you know, looking at the, the business as a whole or, you know, best practices or benchmarking. Um, but then I do have clients that, you know, ask me to get into the weeds and ask me to review journal entries and, and uh, both sets of clients I love. We get exposure to all shapes and sizes. And I think that's, you know, one of the many things that uh, keeps me in public accounting because it's not one thing that I'm doing day in, day out. Yeah. You talked about learning. And so I kind of wanted to unpack that a little bit and I guess test your willingness to be vulnerable. So learning can come in a variety of different forms and there's all kinds of teachers, but one of my favorite questions, I guess, is just exploring failure as a teacher. You know, a lot of the time, in the real world, we encounter setbacks and temporary failures that can be repositioned as learning opportunities. So I guess in that, in the spirit of learning, do you have a favorite professional failure? Yeah, I would say, and this is more of a, I guess, a behavioral lesson that I recently learned, actually. I guess if I were to explain my skill set, I would consider myself as someone that can read people and understand a situation and essentially what we like to call soft skills. I feel like I excel in that, in that area. And I think I took that, that assessment of my own strengths and I might have oversold it in a previous experience. And what I'm talking about is the uh, boutique firm that I was uh, part of uh, was undergoing uh, several changes. And, you know, not only procedural changes, but also staffing changes, uh, you name it. And I thought that the way to implement the changes that were necessary was by over-communicating. So doing a lot of talking, explaining my positions, explaining my reasons for my positions. And I think what I know I missed was doing more listening. What I know that I need to work on is what they say, you have two ears and one mouth. A lot of times I get overexcited when seeing a possible problem that I can solve or area that I can address. And so what I tend to do is I over-communicate. And in this situation, I really had to step back after it was all said and done and reevaluate the direction that I took to implement that change. And I think there's a lot of things that definitely I learned from and that I will take with me going forward. So I'd say that was the biggest, most recent lesson I've, I've learned. There's many more, but that's probably at the top of my mind. That's awesome. I 
we'll refer a book here. We'll put it in the show notes. I just actually got an advanced copy from Dan Solon is the author. He's a gentleman that I hired last year to actually do some coaching and consulting for me and my team as it pertains to just listening, active listening, and I guess capturing the power of great questions. And so he's done all kinds of incredible research around the neuroscience of conversations and how to engage people emotionally in conversations. And so I'm only a couple of chapters into this book, but delighted so far. But just talking about the way of great questions can really engage the heads and hearts of an audience. And so clearly, I think what you're talking about, that's talk less, listen more, is valuable in change management, but in all other areas of life as well. So I guess now as we talk about change management, we talked about kind of an experience that you had that you, you know, the outcome was less than maybe what you would have wanted. A lot of the research that I've read, one in particular a study from Harvard found that 70% of change initiatives fail. I guess I'm curious from your perspective, why do you think that is? Why is change management within an organization so difficult? I think, you know, from my standpoint, my experience, I think the effective change comes from engaging the team and or the decision makers. And I think a lot of times uh, professionals or call them consultants, advisors, like to point out the problems and really hammer down on the problems and not necessarily the successes. So I think um, a lot of times you, you can either motivate uh, your team to, you know, accomplish a set of goals by, you know, reward system. Or, you know, if we, if we obtain 15% growth in this service line, then we're all going to get a bonus. Well, you know, eventually that, that will work, but I think only to a certain extent. I think you need to really motivate. You need to know the team that you're working with. You need to know that your personnel, um, you need to know what drives them. Uh, that's what I've really learned in the last few years dealing with clients is what you, what you do in one client situation most likely won't work in another. You really need to know the personalities. You need to know, um, you know, at the end of the day, it sounds, sounds kind of corny, but change is extremely emotional. That's what, to me, I would always say, if I could say anything was non-emotional, it'd be accounting. But that's, you know, when, as I learn and as I progress in my career, I see that there's, especially when dealing with people, emotions play a key role in a lot of decision-making and a lot of change management, a lot of successes day-to-day in a business. So yeah, I think you need to know your audience. You need to know what motivates them. You need to know that it's not one thing fits everyone. It's going to be different for everyone you encounter. Yeah, no, I think that's uh, really well said. The comment that change is emotional, I think is interesting. In the 1980s, they started to experiment with brain scans to better understand how different experiences engage different parts of our brain. And what they learned is change is pain. Essentially, you know, it provokes uh, physiological discomfort when we experience change. It triggers specific parts of our brain. The amygdala, which we've all talked about, kind of the amygdala hijack, as well as old other parts of the brain that are more associated with kind of the older parts of the brain in close proximity to emotion that 
most correlated with kind of the fight or flight. And so I think there's a, something in our anatomy, our biology that is change averse. The part of our brain that controls habits, the basal ganglia is, it doesn't consume a lot of energy. And so it's our natural state. You know, Daniel Kahneman talked about phase one and phase two thinking like in phase one, you're kind of on autopilot. And when phase two kicks in, it consumes a lot of energy. And so I think by default, we just conserve energy to conserve focus. Don't really enjoy those activities that, you know, stimulate undesired change in our lives. And so I think understanding that change is pain for your organization is important. And so John Cotter, the Harvard professor, he outlined a model. It's an eight-step model that might be worth checking out. K-O-T-T-E-R. But the part of the model I think that is was most meaningful to me was step one was to create a sense of urgency. I think as a leader, a lot of the time you can see the need to change. And so we don't maybe spend as much time unpacking why we need to change. I've said it before here on the show that people don't change until the pain of their current circumstance exceeds the pain of change. And so I think helping people that maybe have different perspectives and maybe not understand the full reason that the organization needs to embrace the change, more time probably needs to be spent creating that sense of urgency and articulating the consequences of not changing. Well, yeah, no, I think you bring up a good point as well as in terms of the autopilot. I mean, I'm sure that you've dealt with this where there's a lot of times where you've got in your car and then you ended up at your destination and you don't remember most of the drive because, you know, basically you're on autopilot and that, that all changes when, you know, you're asked to do something different. Maybe, maybe you drive an automatic normally and this time you're asked to drive a stick. And so, yeah, to your point, the fight or fight, there's uh there's certain aspects where, you know, if I'm having to do a, you know, a manual transmission, it, it's going to be difficult and there's going to be a lot of stressors involved. So, um, it's definitely, I can definitely relate to those, uh, you know, the different, different ways our, our brain will, will operate on a, on a daily basis. Yeah. If I were to ask about any specific experiences that you've had as it pertains to change management, where you've learned something, either something to do or something to avoid, do any specific scenarios come to mind? I think I kind of touched on it earlier. I think being so willing to come up with every solution that uh, a client will have is kind of our, our natural reaction as advisors or as accountants. We like to come up with the correct answer to the specific problem that we're, that we're uh, tasked at, at completing. So I think, you know, instead of taking that mind frame and really stepping back and you know, essentially assessing the situation, kind of like you said earlier of, you know, first we need to see where we want to go. What, okay, so we have a problem at hand, but um, what's our end goal? So, you know, stepping back and looking at the, the overall pictures and, and knowing that going into this, I may not have all the answers. I may have uh, no answers, but I might have asked the right question to the, the client to, you know, ultimately get them to, the correct solution. So I think, you know, a lot of the experiences that I've dealt with uh, most recently have been those that I've uh, been another set of eyes or ears to, you know, communicate maybe, you know, past experiences or ask the right questions. Those have been the, 
the successful uh, change situations I've seen just most recently, uh, as opposed to the ones where, you know, I'll come in and, and uh, you know, hear a problem, give some solutions, and then ultimately, you know, leave them to implement the change. I think those are the ones that are uh, set up for, you know, failure uh, more often than not. Yeah. Great questions often precede or more often than not precede great answers. And so being intentional in that discovery process, I think, pays huge dividends. Well, so, you know, we're talking about, again, this theme of change in COVID-19 and whatever state of the economy we're in right now, it seems as though companies that are going to continue to be successful in the future will be able to navigate change and, I guess, culturally be very adaptable. So right now we're fielding a lot of questions from clients as it pertains to trying to extract actionable insight from their numbers and how does this impact their plans going forward. And so as I guess from your standpoint, leading our advisory practice and many of those engagements, what are some of the current change initiatives that you see our clients trying to juggle right now? What are some of the decisions and or change projects that you're seeing? Yeah, um, I think currently the ones that uh, are most frequent are the are the clients that are reaching out to us to address the you know what I call short term need. That's you know, let's keep the doors open. Let's deal with how COVID nineteen has affected our business from the the short term, the the next month term. Those are those are the the biggest you know um, biggest questions that a lot of a lot of clients are asking which, you know, usually are centered around the Paycheck Protection Program uh, that was the initiative passed within the CARES Act. Um, but what I'm trying to, uh, what I'm trying to shift the conversation with those clients um, after the short-term solutions are identified or uh, initiatives is what are you going to do after that loan runs out or after you know, COVID-19 settles to a new normal, what, what is the, what is the goal then? Um, are you asking the right questions to your business partners? Are you asking the right questions to your department heads? Um, what, what change do you see in your business currently? Has, has a business changed at all due to this pandemic? So I think um, there's a lot of those questions that I'm help, I'm helping to, uh, to drive home. I would say, or at least have uh, my clients ask the uh, respective folks. Um, and there's also, you know, getting to know uh, your business after this is all done. What What is the new normal going to be? Is there a way that you can um, shift shift your your uh, your service offering? Is Is there going to be Are there going to be permanent changes? Uh, temporary temporarily changed. Uh, service offerings. So there's there's a lot of things that I think um, need to be need, need to be addressed. And I you know I've actually had one client say this is a blessing in disguise because he was he sees it as uh, an opportunity, not a, as a downfall. He sees it as hey, we needed to change as an organization, and this is forcing us to do that. He said this is uh, you know this is helping us completely wipe out our budget and start from scratch, which he thinks needed to be done years ago. So it's all, it's all about a mindset. And I think that, uh, you know, everyone's dealing with the pandemic to a certain extent, some, some more than others. And I think if you have a, 
positive mindset going into it, I think ultimately those are going to be the companies coming out uh, successful athletes. Kyle, thanks so much. Really appreciate you taking the time to share some thoughts and experiences with our community today. That certainly leaves us, though, with the question of where do we start? How do we start? So let's turn to a model that we've talked about a couple of different times here on the show. A simple model. Now, where, how. Essentially, if we were to visualize directions, it's impossible to receive directions if we don't first know where we are today. Think about our phones. When we take our phones out and ask our iPhone for directions, the phone, without us even having to put in our data, tells the satellites and the software where we are now. We merely put in the destination and how falls out. So though the order of that model, now, where, how, sounds simple, we often take for granted that we haven't clearly defined where we are now, nor have we clearly defined with a level of precision of where we're trying to go. Just a a direction north isn't precise enough to ensure that you end up at the destination that you're really pursuing. A story and or model that I thought would be helpful to share in this moment is a story that actually goes back to the early 80s with Ronald Reagan when he was trying to globalize the economy. And so he sent some managerial consultants to China to help them come up with an economic development plan. And so these consultants came over and obviously Ivy League trained, probably consultants from the traditional consulting firms, and they had their strategic planning models. But when they showed up there in China, one of the first things that they realized was culturally they were moving faster than their counterparts. And what they realized was that in the United States, we were much more prone to assume where we were and where we wanted to go. The example kind of word picture wise that they used when they returned was, you know, here in the United States, we might be at the bottom of a mountain and we'll point to the top and say, let's go and uh, just merely start climbing the mountain. Whereas in the East, that culture in China at that time was much more deliberate in their planning process rather than just climbing the face of the mountain that they had to be or happened to be standing at at that moment. They rather walked around the mountain. They wanted to fully understand their environment and make sure whatever path they decided to pursue was truly the right path. And so there was a level of precision and there was an intentionality in that initial discovery process that was pretty transformative. And so many of these managerial consultants came back and were able to implement some of this strategic planning discovery process, not only within the discovery process for a strategic plan, but also the strategic plans that individuals can create for themselves, essentially personal strategic plans. And so getting clarity and going through true discovery process, anchoring where we are truly today, and more importantly, with a level of precision, where do we want to go? There can be tremendous value there. And finally, I wanted to share some summaries from the best book on change management that I've personally read. It's called Switch by Chip and Dan Heath. Throughout our conversation today with Kyle, we talked about change is pain. Change is emotion. And we talked about some of the neuroscience that supports that truth. The book Switch by Chip and Dan Heath builds upon that thesis, indicates that the number one reason that change fails is it's because of our emotions. It's our emotional side, not our rational side. Essentially, our rational side, the prefrontal cortex, can't cooperate long enough 
with our emotional side, our amygdala, for the desired change to actually occur. So grabbing a particular section of the book, it goes as following. When people try to change things, they're usually tinkering with behaviors that have become automatic. And changing those behaviors requires careful supervision by the writer. The bigger the change you're suggesting, the more it will sap people's self-control. And when people exhaust their self-control, what they're exhausting are the mental muscles needed to think creatively, to focus, to inhibit their impulses, and to persist in the face of frustration and failure. In other words, they're exhausting precisely the mental muscles needed to make big change. So though I strongly encourage you to grab this book and read it for yourself, the three-part framework that the authors suggest is to direct our logic. What looks like resistance often is merely just a lack of clarity. So provide crystal clear direction to your team. Part two would be to motivate your emotions. What looks like laziness is often exhaustion. So our logic can't be forced to sustain kind of the period of time that is often required to support the change. So it's critical that we engage people's emotional sides to get that amygdala cooperating with the change that we need to see as an organization. In the final part of the change model suggested by the authors is to shape the path. What looks like a people problem is often a situation problem. And the authors call the situation, including kind of the surrounding environment, the path. When you shape the path, you make change more likely, no matter what's happening in our emotions or our logic. So best of luck as you proceed to embrace the required change to not only survive this challenging time of 2020, but thrive in the economy and the world beyond this moment. Because we do know that markets work. We do know that money will move to where it's treated best. We do know that there will be a 2021. And so if you can continue to be perseverant, if you can continue to embrace change and be at times long-suffering as you drive forward the change necessary to delight clients, there's an incredible amount of opportunity for you and your teams in the years to come. So thank you so much for your time today. If we can be of any assistance to you in any of your change initiatives or can, can connect you with any of these resources discussed today, don't hesitate to reach out. And until next time, be well.